Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Conference in Berlin, Germany, where I'm excited to have Horacio Pena on the podcast. Horacio is a tax principal and senior economist based in the PwC's New York City office. He is the firm's Global Transfer Pricing Network leader. He has 30 years of experience conducting intercompany pricing studies and devising solutions to complex international tax investment, and pricing problems faced by large and emerging multinational corporations. Horacio, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for the invite to your Global TP conference. Hey, my conference is your conference, Doug. Thank you for having me here. Well, so this is, I think, my second podcast here after the Medtronic decision related to TP. So I'm... uh, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a TP expert, but I feel like I'm getting a little smarter in these topics. So I certainly appreciate the invite to the conference. This is your, what, your first conference that we've been able to have since was 2019? Yes, exactly, Doug. I mean, we've been planning this for three years and uh, we signed this contract to have this conference a long time ago. And guess what happened? A big pandemic happened. Right. And so we did a couple virtual ones and we yeah. are basically celebrating that we are here, we are healthy and we're working on important topics. That's great. And we obviously had our, the, our international tax conference for, for our international tax services practice, which was the first one that we had in three years. And in fact, um, that conference, we actually had the conference scheduled for March of 2020, and I had to cancel that thing a week before. And uh, I'm still not really over that. We spent, you know, you know how much time it takes oh, preparing this. But it's great to be able to get advisors and clients and everybody back together and uh, um, really exciting. And, and this is the first time, Horacio, that we're recording the cross-border tax talks outside the United States. So it's, Well, thank uh, you. It's an honor, Doug. Thanks for having us. So let's talk about kind of a macro view. You've spent a lot of time preparing for this conference. Um, we had a discussion a couple weeks ago with a couple of your colleagues, really kind of talking about the Medtronic decision. But I thought we could even step back to really understand, you know, what are some of the market forces that you're seeing that are driving change to, to transfer pricing? And I know you've surveyed some taxpayers recently and would love to kind of hear from a macro perspective what's going on in the world of transfer pricing. Well, thanks, Doug. I mean, I think, as, as you know, you know, it seemed like the, the pandemic was with us just now and we, we're still recovering. That's a good news. But we, quite frankly, we've been in a roller coaster, right? It's, it's just been tremendous. I mean, the first thing starts with climate change and crisis. I mean, this, been, this year has been pretty bad. We have the biggest droughts in the world in, 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 in China. Hydroelectric stopped. Right. We have huge droughts here in Europe. And uh, we had, you know, tremendous uh, tragic, tra- uh, tragic uh, storm in Florida, and right. we, you've seen the images, it's just the destruction has been tremendous. Right. So, yeah, I'm just talking, all over the world. I mean, those all are just the a world. few examples. So the fact that there is climate volatility across the board is just going to create tremendous disruption to our already stressed supply chains and adding to inflation, right? So it's, it's been a tremendous difficulty. Next, we have China with their COVID policies who have detracted to their own growth put more stress on the supply chain stability, more inflation. And, um, and we have 
the energy crisis. We have the geopolitical uh, trade war and tech war with China. We have the Ukrainian war that is adding even more restrictions. You have the, the West sanctions on Russia as well. All of it contributing to supply chain stability and more inflation. Right. Europe is now has double-digit inflation, and we got many countries, the Balkan states, Eastern Europe, with uh, recording 20% plus inflation. Now, we, uh, we, on, on top of that, we have the Fed, and we have the EU Federal Reserve increase in, in interest rates five times. Three of those right. are 75% basis points. And there's a real disconnect between the monetary actions of, of, of central banks in Europe and the United States. And that has created a, a huge crisis of inflation. As you know, central banks are attacking inflation. Now, you think that OPEC plus is going to come to the rescue? No, right. that's not the case. Yeah. They just announced 2 million barrel of oil reduction. Uh, so right. that we're recording this early in October of 2022. Yeah, so that, and that was big news over the last couple of weeks. So, so that basically places, uh, we have a situation now where basically, as you know, we hit parity with the euro a few weeks ago. The U.S. dollar. Uh, the U.S. dollar yeah. gets the euro. And then you have kind of, some would say, the erratic uh, tax policy in the U.K. that have backfired by, by trying to cut taxes. And, and we had a, a financial crisis in the U.K. Yeah, and let me just unpack that for listeners because we haven't really spent much time talking about the cross-border tax talks. Because the U.K. had originally proposed when Liz Truss took over the prime minister as prime minister, she had mentioned that she wanted to, because the U.K.'s, uh, corporate tax rate was moving from 19 to 25, um, and she said she was going to effectively. They were her her administration or was going to stop the the increase to to 25, and then also make reduce the overall rate for high earners from 45 to 40. So that has created a lot of tensions. So net effect of all this, Doug, is since May, the dollar has risen 19 percent against the euro. Uh, again, like I said, it reached parity a few weeks ago. The dollar appreciated 20% against the pound before retreating a little bit and 28% against the yen. For the first time since 2011, central bank in Japan had to intervene to deal with these FX markets. You have to travel 50 years uh, back in time to see uh, to find a dollar that was this strong. It's incredible. And we did, I actually did a podcast, a several couple podcasts ago, on foreign exchange because the dollar has appreciated so much and there's just been so much volatility that there are opportunities for, for taxpayers as they think about FX, I say opportunities, there's also traps, you know, given all the volatility that we've seen in the FX market. So exactly, so make no mistake, uh, the rising dollar has created a tremendous amount of pain, both for the very large multinational companies, but especially for smaller technology companies. Imagine you're a high growth company with high growth but then after you do the translation in U.S. dollars, you, your growth gets attracted. Right. So, so it's just, and, and on top of that, you have the high cost of financing has drastically reduced appetites for deals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and on top of that, we, as you know, in the States, mortgages, and in in not only in the United States, but in many countries, have skyrocketed. So most of the experience a tremendous pain. And, and now because, because of all this uh, trend, uh, we, we're seeing a slowdown, but, but what we're not seeing a slowdown at all is on transformation digitization, right? Companies yeah. are still spending a tremendous amount of money and resources because companies have to do a lot more with a lot less. Yeah, so I think that's pretty interesting because you mentioned all of these kind of 
geopolitical macroeconomic factors right, that we're seeing that are putting pressure on. I mean, some of this even predates the pandemic. If we look at the trade war with China, you know, there was, that was already creating issues on the supply chain. I think a number of us were a little surprised at how long it took for that kind of bubble to work its way through the supply chain, right? That we knew that the trade war was going to create some issues, but it was probably 12 to 24 months later that we started to see that. And then we were also having to deal with the pandemic. And then you mentioned climate change and the war and all these other areas. And the other big trend, Doug, exactly, we haven't mentioned is localization and regionalization. So guess what? Brexit also adds inflation. And we, we've seen a lot of, of offshoring. We've seen work together in offshoring situations back to the United States. Some right. of it is spilling into Mexico and other countries. Uh, but that is also inflationary in general. But there's a lot of new foreign direct investment going, going around. Yeah, and that's exactly where I wanted to go. So, so you had mentioned kind of the business transformation, supply chain resiliency. So despite all these kind of economic headwinds and major issues that companies are, that multinationals are having to deal with, your point is that they are having to change. They, they are still, it is an amazingly dynamic environment. It's not that companies can just kind of hole up and deal with that. And so how are companies, like what are they doing? You had mentioned business transformation, supply chain, digital transformation. What are you seeing in, in the market? And I know we've done, you've got some data to support that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's a lot of changes. And of course, companies don't want to enter into a deal at the low point, right? The stock market has been hit in a really bad way. But we're still seeing a lot of this, uh, when one of my uh, deals partners calls transact to transform kind of trend. Um, and, 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 and the key focus is, so, so we did a survey, PwC ran a survey across all tax leaders in the industry. And some of the things we found is that 84% of tax leaders are focusing on business transformation as a result of the business environment. 68% say that they're improving the supply chains and making them more resilient. 55% plan to increase investments in digital transformation in the next 12 months. 32% say that tax policy changes pose a very serious risk to their companies. And 27% are very concerned about the timing and the impact. For all those reasons, Doug, the theme of our year's Global Transfer Pricing Conference is business transformation and reimagining the future of transfer pricing. Right, so, so, help, so let's tie that in, both for me as a non-TP guy, um, as well as for, for our listeners. So why do these kind of macroeconomic and major changes that we're seeing, why and how does that impact transfer pricing? Like, what I, does that mean? I think most people don't realize that, that almost two thirds of the global trade takes place between related parties. So we have multinational companies, you got joint ventures, even uh, if you have small relative ownership, that's considered a related party in many countries. And so it starts with that business, business change and that business strategy. So I like to talk about uh, the life cycle transfer pricing. So there's a major event and some of it is driven by a customs issue, an offshoring issue, uh, a deal as we're talking about. And all of a sudden you, you have a carve out, you now have to allocate expenses across different entities. Mm -hmm. You have to split the intellectual property, the IP. So there's all these event driven and we're seeing it now more than ever before driven by a business strategy that kicks off that life cycle of change. So the first step is you need a new transfer pricing policy. Mm -hmm. For example, we have a number of energy companies that are reacting very quickly to the Inflationary Reduction Act. So they're impacting their strategy and now they're refocusing their efforts to avail themselves of the incentives 
signed by the Biden. Yeah, and this is what you're referring to as the, the U.S. corporate tax reform that we've seen within the last few months. Had uh, Aaron Jung on the podcast talking about that. So that's where we had the book minimum tax. But to your point, there was a whole host of green energy incentives that were, that were introduced as part of that inflation, the, the Inflation Reduction Act that I'm sure is really informing business decisions and behavior since its enactment. Exactly. And we're here in Berlin. We, we call it the design capital and transformation capital of Europe. But even here in Berlin, we have a number of clients who, are, who have operations in the United States and reconsidering those and to take advantage of those incentives. So we have that life cycle of having to formulate your new transfer pricing policy. And then it gets to the hard part, which is the operations, execution. How do you do it? And as you know, we're living a crisis of mistrust, right, all around the world. It's like they're not going to take your word for it. They're not going to take my word for it. I think the question is we have, uh, we're moving from static taxation to dynamics taxation. And the question is, I, I call it the ultimate truth. What is the ultimate truth? The ultimate truth is, data, is transaction source data. It's like going back down to the ERP level and be able to extract the data or the customs data too. So there's more and more tax administrations are getting into that. But once you capture the question, then the next step is, is calculations. You gotta mm -hmm. get your calculations right. And you remember the old days where we could do things in, in Excel and things like that. That is impossible today. Is, as you know better than anybody, is the amount of quantitative analysis you need to, to run is just my model. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that. But you're right. A spreadsheet environment is certainly challenging given the complexity associated with a lot of what we're talking about. And, and so, you know, you and I talk a lot about tax certainty, tax uncertainty. And the question is, does it even exist? I was talking to somebody, who, a friend who was telling me, I mean, we in the Western world, it's like we're totally focused on tax certainty and, mm -hmm. and that's driving everything. Um, I like to assert that tax certainty exists. It's very hard, it requires a lot of work, a lot of technical analysis, a lot of computer power, but there are ways. If you can actually master that data extraction, really uh, be able to calculate those things in a powerful and reliable way, mm -hmm. and then get, get into uh, certainty. And, and obviously, um, tax rulings and advanced pricing agreements right. are a very, very important part of that, that focus. Right, and I think the other piece on tax certainty, and this kind of even ties into the Medtronic decision that we talked about is, and, and, and this uh, you know, goes to the execution, and I think what we're gonna talk about the documentation point, is just regularly making sure that kind of that initial analysis that you've done continues to be honored, if you will, from the people, the functions, you know, everything that was kind of when you set that policy, right? And I, I do want to come back to, as we think about execution, because we can set up the, the policy and execute on it, but then we continuously have to monitor to make sure, right, that those significant people functions, that everything that we kind of committed to at the policy formation stage still st is still true, right? Because to your point, there's a lot of market forces that change you know, how a company operates. Absolutely. So I think that unfortunately, right, we're seeing a lot of taxpayers who are finding out that their transfer pricing documentation is not as effective as should be because, you know, it was just printed on paper. It maybe it was done a lot long time ago. Uh, the business have changed. The intellectual property has changed. The deals have changed. The value chain has changed. If it's not been up to date, they're finding that uh, tax authorities all over the world are challenging. So all these changes are leading to a next generation type of transfer pricing documentation, where again, it's not about what you and me say, but about creating that 
fundamental evidence, either linked all the way to the source of the data um, or, or, the, or, or the functional analysis, the value chain, all these different aspects to make sure that our transferizing documentation is really effective. Yeah, you talked about for the life cycle of transferizing, policy formation, execution, documentation, and kind of tying that back to the earlier part of the conversation, given what a dynamic area we are from a, from a market forces and some of these business trends. I mean, how often should, should big multinationals reassess their transfer pricing? I mean, because it just, it feels like it is just so dynamic. And to your point on the supply chains, right, and just companies having to look at, you know, effectively chain near sourcing, to your point, onshoring uh, various activities, um, you know, what advice do you have for taxpayers given this dynamic area? Because it's obviously, it's a huge endeavor setting that transfer pricing policy and the execution. And then it's just like, well, it's, things could change in six to 12 months. I mean, well, what do you, what, you know, what's the advice that you give to taxpayers? So, in that so that, that's, that's, a, that's a great question because it's so intimidating for many taxpayers and saying, say, wow, I'm, and then well, I'm going to wait a little six months and then I'm going to wait another six right. months. And the change is tremendous. I think the, the reality is that it, there are playbooks for this, right? If, if doing nothing, a status quo, is just gonna complicate things, right? I work with a lot of emerging multinationals. Some of them have a lot of, they acquire a company, they leave the IP in one place, in another place, in another place, in another place. They start adding functions. They start creating a web of intercompany services and charges. Right. And the amount of complexity is just mind boggling. And they, they don't have the capabilities to do the segmentation, to do the intangible development cost analysis and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So there are playbooks where they say, look, we can simplify that. I guess that's the answer, mm -hmm. is in, in a world of increasing complexity, the only solution is technology. There's not enough manpower to deal other ways. With right. That. And number two, you gotta drive simplification constantly. Simplification constantly. Are you gonna concentrate your intellectual property in one place or two places? Maybe three, but no more. Mm -hmm. And 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 you have to be. You have to create that vision, a long-term plan, and then you have to focus on relentless execution. Yeah, and it'll be interesting. We're going to come back to this, but just as a teaser, because you know I can't do a cross-border tax talks without mentioning Pillar 2. It's going to be interesting to me to see how or if certain jurisdictions change some of their incentives, right? Particularly with the, the Pillar 2 requirement that you know it needs to be a qualified, refundable tax credit to be able to be considered a covered tax under Pillar 2. And that those types of credits generally have driven a lot of R&D, right? A lot of research and development, which has dictated where people develop their IP, you know, who are the people that they use for, for that. And it's going to be fascinating, I think, that, you know, if Pillar 2 continues with its momentum and gets implemented, how, you know, t jurisdictions respond and then how that could impact behavior, right? And actually impact where companies start to do some of their R&D, depending what happens to some of these incentives. Because that really drives a lot of the decisions, right? Based on as, as various countries compete for those type of, of resources and activities. Absolutely. And I think the net effect of all of that is that the the, stake, the stakes of getting transfer pricing right is going to be more important than ever. When you start thinking about those top of taxes and, and the ability to get credit somewhere else in another country, um, I think the complexity again between Pillar 2, the book minimum corporate tax, the U.S. international tax rules, and all these new country requirements, uh, it's just going to create tremendous risk, unfortunately, tremendous risk 
with double taxation and yeah. even management disruption. And we're going to come back to that. But the, I want to come back to the, the, the life cycle of transfer pricing because we really talked about the policy formation, the execution, the documentation, and the need for taxpayers to really stay on top of that. And just given this dynamic environment to use technology, but, but what about defense? Because you, know, you had mentioned that it, it feels a, a lot more contentious between taxpayers and taxing authorities. And we've certainly seen that in the U.S. with um, some recent big transfer pricing decisions, one of which you know, I've already mentioned, Medtronic. Um, but you know, what, are, what trends are you seeing with respect to both defense and kind of even both within the U.S. and outside the U.S.? And, you know, how much more scrutiny are taxpayers getting in the transfer pricing space? So, Doug, as you know, uh, you and me have been doing this for a very long time. And, and I started actually full-time working on tax court cases and tax controversy. Back in those days, the world was simple, hard right. but simple, where the, the tax disputes were based on taxpayer information only, for the most part. Um, the world has changed uh, in very radical ways. Um, on top of everything else, we talked about the new t- you know, tax developments. Uh, the reality, and I guess this is the, the hard part, right, is to recognize that we are entering a new era of tax enforcement and tax increases. And of course, you, you know all about the $80 billion modernization program in the U.S., but, yep. but obviously- As part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Absolutely, yep. and, and it's, it's not an isolated instance, right? So it basically, there's tons of tax administrations all around the world using all kinds of resources, including emerging technologies, um, to enforce taxes in various ways. And I, I, again, I think what we're talking about in terms of information, um, we're going to a world where we call tra- 360 degree radical transparency. In other words, you're not just doing an audit with respect to tax information. Now they're asking information, they're looking at regulators, they're looking at banks, they're looking at your customers, they're looking at LinkedIn profiles, they're obtaining information from all, to to basically gradually, we have a spider chart that we show the different types of data that tax administrations are using aggressively in tax examinations and it's growing very quickly. So mm-hmm. pretty much in two or three years, it's going to be 360 degree mm-hmm. transparency. So basically, at the end of the day, that's what I'm saying. We have to go all to the ultimate truth, the, the, the uh, uh, unquestionable elements of evidence, which also are based on that the world is changing so fast that we need to go to that dynamic data. We have to go to the source right. of the data. How much has country by country reporting? Because that's been one of the major changes over the last few years. Um, that obviously provides certainly more insight for taxing authorities. Um, but how have you seen that so, kind of change the game? So I guess I guess I have to, unfortunately the BEP, the you know the BEPS program was was sold as a simplification thing, and unfortunately I have to report there's not one country, not one. <laughs> that has deleted any rules or eliminated anything. Unfortunately, I call I, it- I forgot that you're right. It was, it was, it was advertised as a simplification. Unfortunately, but. that has led us to what I call the world of compliance insanity. Yeah. And, and so as a result, uh, yes, they have all that data. And, and not only that, even for situations where they don't have the country by country data, even for smaller taxpayers, what we're seeing is some IDRs, information document requests, asking information about compensation about the employees, the location of these employees. And in some cases, uh, we have also, you know, profit splits and other kinds of, of things that are, that, uh, you know, in some countries may fly because of lack, lack of legal precedence. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, luckily, we have a, a very strong 
tax law in, in, in a, a very rich uh, legal precedence of some of right. these court cases. They're going to they're gonna aid taxpayers. But as you know, the law tax law doesn't operate uh, that way in many other countries, especially right. emerging markets. Sure, sure. Um, so so we, we, you spoke a little bit about the, the tax certainty and, and enforcement, and we were talking about de- defense. Um, so you know, how have you seen technology change really in the last few years? Because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about it in your practice. Obviously, I spent a lot of time and you know, in my role, we've dedicated quite a bit of time to the cross-border tax stocks to technology. Um, and you had mentioned kind of getting out of the spreadsheet environment. And, and, you know, we have spent a lot of time talking about kind of a graph database, the idea of a centralized rules engine. Um, as we do, you know, complex tax calculations based on, you know, the tax laws. But talk a little bit about how kind of the economics and kind of how technology has really, has really evolved at the transfer pricing space. Absolutely, Doug, and we've done it together, right? So, so that, 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 it, that's the future, really. Those centralized engines, that's the future. There's no way to keep, you know, keep uh, updating things on a local country basis when you right. think about how the governments are going to develop uh, these, these rules and what the pace of change are. Your spreadsheet is likely to be wrong, even if you're the fastest Excel guy in the world. So, if, so likewise, you, you know, uh, in our teams, obviously, we, we, we've done all this work to eliminate lots of hours of work using right. a combination of enterprise-wide solutions and self-serving tools. And I think one of the, we have a number of panels in this conference where we're showing that you don't have to be a giant multinational corporations and spend millions of dollars to, to do things, but you can be, some small companies have developed some really clever ways and very inexpensive ways to automate things. But it starts with understanding the rules and digitizing those rules, and that's really, really, really hard. Uh, right. Very few people in the world can actually do that. Right. Uh, but then there are other tasks that, yes, can be automated using self-serving tools and bots and other kinds of things. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's very interesting from a kind of direct income tax perspective, which is you know where I spend most of my time. That historically has always been just each individual country, right, has its own rules, and you have to do the calculations for each respective country. Pillar two obviously really changes the game on that, right? Because it is this cross-jurisdictional tax base and calculation that needs to be done. And obviously there's uncertainty. Is every country really going to adopt the exact same version of Pillar 2, just wholesale take the model rules and the commentary? You know, and if we end up with slightly different variations, how does that work with the QDMTT and the under and the under tax payment rule? But from a transfer pricing perspective, while I guess you could argue that you know each country does have different transfer pricing rules, you have to create this economic analysis that goes across a number of different jurisdictions, right? And that's really kind of where I think you know the transfer pricing area is a little ahead of the direct area and where we've been able to, to learn from you. And country by country, I think, is kind of was maybe one of those first steps, right, where we had to do this kind of multi-jurisdictional filing. But what I've had to remind, you know, people is that that really wasn't a tax calculate. Like, there was no kind of uh, actual tax liability that came out of the country by country. But it did force taxpayers to really have to work across multiple jurisdictions and then think about filing across those various jurisdictions 
which is can be similar to pillar two in the fact that you've got to take this one kind of piece of information and file it across a number of different territories. It's like playing multi-dimensional chess. Right. And just to tell you one more analogy, I mean, when I, when I was a kid, I used to play chess competitively. Okay. And so we have like the opening, which is very clean and elegant, open up the possibilities, keep your op optionality. We talk in tax all the time. So that's what the openings are. You got the middle game and the end game. And the end game is pretty elegant and clean too. I feel right now the agony of that complexity where in the middle game, where all of a sudden you make one wrong move and your whole position deteriorates and collapses, quite frankly. So unfortunately, I think it's pretty dangerous times that in terms of these calculations and that analysis, you can just miss something and you can, you can miss something big. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a complex world, that's for sure. All right. So maybe I'll, we'll, I want to end things kind of where we started, which was some of the market forces and, and business trends. And I'd love to hear what advice do you have for taxpayers? Because we talked about what a rich environment it is for business transformation. I feel like that transformation word gets thrown around and that can be anything from you know, ERP implementations and front office and back office, um, supply chain transformation, supply chain resiliency. Digital transformation, I think we're seeing a, a, a lot of, right? Where companies even uh, that just frankly have not had a big kind of tech or digital you know, footprint or history are now having to reimagine how they work. And so as companies are making large investments, particularly in this kind of macroeconomic environment where you know, potentially could be recessionary, you know, what advice do you have for taxpayers from a transfer pricing perspective as they're either going through or thinking about some of these business transformations? Uh, th thanks for that question, Doug. So I think at, as we see businesses transforming with new operating models to monetize, to generate more revenues, they're moving at such a speed, right, that the, the tax function has to catch up. And yeah. the only way to catch up is to have the right playbook and the right technology, quite frankly, to deal with the changes. Because just dealing with tons of fire drills and just barely keeping up on that fiscal year, knowing that six months from now, the complexity can go to 2x or 3x or 4x, it's just a recipe for a lot of pain, unfortunately, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's gonna be much easier. We, we, don't, we don't plan to fail. Uh, and, we, and, and so I think it's very important to, to come up with the right tools. When we talk about transformation, really is using the right technology, the right data, the right solution, to have that flexibility because, again, as Plato said, it's, it's very important to, to be able to have the, 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 the panorama view, be able to see things. If you can't see things, much more likely to make a mistake, be able to step back and say, okay, what's the vision of the tax function? What do I need to do strategically to have that flexibility? Otherwise, my people are gonna burn out, they're gonna leave, we're gonna have these issues. It's not gonna be sustainable. So the concept is how to create a sustainable outcome Right, and, I like and, that. And, and make sure that we have that vision and then we have that discipline around the execution, the data, the calculations. Yeah, and I think, I mean, what I've seen, and you've been doing this a few more, few more years than me, not many, as we, as we discussed earlier, um, but it, there's, there just requires more connection with the business. Now, listen, we've been saying this for decades, right? Like how important it is for us, for us as tax advisors, whether it's international tax and TP, to, to stay close to the business. Um, but I felt like even if we go back 10, 20 years, that frankly, even us as tax advisors, we could operate in a vacuum. You know, we were able to do you know, some of the structuring and, and planning. 
And that has really changed, right? I mean, and it just, to your point, really requires teaming from a taxpayer's tax department and the business folks to really, particularly as we're thinking about, or as taxpayers are thinking about new strategies, new intellectual property, new processes, like you just have to have a seat at the table and it can't be, you know, just bringing the tax people in because then it does create this fire drill mentality and these challenges and we're all having to deal with turnover, but it just feels even more critical now in such a dynamic environment for tax and the business people to sit down very, very early in the process. Very well said, very well said, Doug, because the reality is when we think about those business strategies, they're now getting shorter cycles, whether it's private equity and they're focusing on shorter business cycles and monetizing assets or large corporates, the same thing. Guess what? When we talk about intellectual property, the, we study life cycles of IP, right? right? Is it 10 years or five years or three years you value IP all the time? Those life cycles are getting shorter and shorter and yeah. shorter. So that puts a lot more pressure on, on the tax function. All right. Well, Horacio, I know you've got an incredibly busy week here. It was a pleasure being able to talk to you and hear more about kind of a macro view of transfer pricing. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, Paul. All right. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Horacio Pena, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.